0: chapter 8 of weapons of mystery this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by carl henning weapons of mystery by joseph hawking chapter 8 darkness and light During the next few days there was but little to record. The party evidently forgot mesmerism and thought reading and seemingly enjoyed themselves without its assistance. The young men and women walked together, talked together, while the matrons looked complacently on. During the day there was hunting, skating, and riding, while at night there was storytelling, charades, games of various sorts, and dancing. Altogether, it was a right old-fashioned, unconventional, English country party, and day by day we got to enjoy ourselves more because we learned to know each other better. Perhaps I am using a wrong expression. I ought not to have said we. I cannot say that I enjoyed myself very much. My life was strange and disappointing. More than that, the calamities I dreaded did not take place but the absence of those calamities brought me no satisfaction, and thus, while all the rest laughed and were joyful, I was solitary and sad. Once or twice I thought of leaving Temple Hall, but I could not bring myself to do so. I should be leaving the woman I was each day loving more and more, to the man who knew no honour, no mercy, no manliness, during these days i was entirely free from voltaire's influence as free as i was before i saw him he always spoke to me politely and to a casual observer his demeanour towards me was very friendly Kafar, on the other hand treated me very rudely he often sought to turn a laugh against me he even greeted me with a sneer i took no notice of him however never replied to his insulting words and this evidently maddened him the truth was, I was afraid lest there should be some design in Voltaire's apparent friendliness and Kafar's evident desire to arouse enmity, and so I determined to be on my guard. I was not so much surprised at my freedom from the influence he had exercised over me the day after I had placed myself under his power, and for a reason that was more than painful to me, Miss Forrest avoided ever meeting me alone, never spoke to me save in monosyllables, And was cold and haughty to me at all times. Many times had I seen her engaged in some playful conversation with some members of the party, but the moment I appeared on the scene, her smile was gone. And, if opportunity occurred, she generally sought occasion to leave. Much as I loved her, I was too proud to ask a reason for this. And so, although we were so friendly on Christmas Day, we were exceedingly cold and distant when new year's eve came this as may be imagined grieved me much and as i saw voltaire smile as he watched miss Forrest repel any attempt of mine to converse with her i began to wish i had never set my foot in temple hall and yet i thought i might be useful to her yet so i determined to remain in yorkshire until she returned to london and even then i hoped to be able to shield her from the designs which I was sure Voltaire still had. New Year's Day was cold and forbidding. The snow had gone and the ice had melted, but the raw, biting wind swept across moor and Fen, forbidding the less robust part of the company to come away from the warm fires. I had come down as usual, and, entering the library, I found Miss Forrest seated. "'I wish you a happy New Year, Miss Forrest,' I said." May it be the happiest year you have ever known. She looked around the room as if she expected to see someone else present. Then, looking up at me, she said, with the happy look I love to see, "And I heartily return your wish, Mister Blake." There was no coldness, no restraint in her voice. She spoke as if she was glad to see me, and wanted me to know it. Instantly, a burden rolled away from my heart, and for a few minutes. I was the happiest of men. Presently I heard voices at the library door, and immediately Miss Forrest's kindness and cheerfulness vanished, and those who entered the room must have fancied that I was annoying her with my company. I remained in the room a few minutes longer, but she was studiously cold and polite to me, so that, when I made a pretense of going out to the stables to see a new horse Tom Temple had bought, I did so with a heavy heart. I had no sooner entered the stable yard than Simon Slowden appeared, and beckoned to me. "'I looked out for your honor all day yesterday,' he said, "'but you lay like a hare in a furze bush. "'Things is looking curious, your honor.' "'Indeed, Simon, how? "'Can he come this year way a minute, your honor?' "'Certainly,' I said, and followed him into a room over the stables. "'I did not like having confidence in this way.' But my brain was confused, and I could not rid myself from the idea that some plot was being concocted against me. Simon looked around to make sure there were no eavesdroppers. Then he said, "There's a ancient word in there called Miss Staggles, ain't there, Mister Blake?" There is. Why? It's my belief as how she's been a waxinated ten times, Your Honor. Why, Simon? Why? She's without blood or marrow, she is, and as for flesh, she ain't got none. Well, what for that? And not only that, he continued, without heeding my question, she ain't got a o' tender feelings in her nature. In my opinion, sir, she's a witch, she is, and I've got dealings with the devil. And what for all this? I said. Surely you haven't taken me up here to give me your impressions concerning Miss Staggles. "'Well, I have partly, Your Honour. "'The truth is,' here he sunk his voice to a whisper, "'she's very thick with that woman with the Hinfidel's name. "'They're in league, sir.' "'How do you know?' "'They've been a-promenadin' together nearly every day since Christmas, "'and when a feller like that ere Walter goes a-walkin' "'with a creature like that ancient virgin on his arm, "'then I think there must be something on board. "'But this is surely surmise, Simon.' There's no reason why Miss Staggles and Mr. Voltaire may not walk together. There's more than surmise, sir. You know, the plantation up behind the house, Mr. Blake. The fir plantation. Very well. Well, sir, the night afore last, I were up there. They're having a kind of Christmas tree in one of the Sunday schools over in the village tonight. And some of the teachers came to the governor and asked him for a tree to put some knick-knacks on. So he says to me, Simon, says he, go up to the plantation and pull up a young fir tree, and then in the morning put it in the cart and take it over to the schoolroom. This was day afore yesterday, in the afternoon. I was busy just then, so I didn't go to the plantation till 'twas dusk. However, as you know, your honor, 'tis moonlight, so I didn't trouble. Well, I got a young fir tree pulled up, and was just a going to light my pipe when I saw some figures are coming through the plantation towards a summer house that was put up about two years ago. So I lied, Luff. I believe I says that it's that infidel and the skinny virgin are walking together. They goes into the summer house and then I creeps down and gets behind a tree but close enough to the couple to hear every word. Sure enough, sir, I were right. It was the virgin Staggles in the cerebral tear. They seemed quarrelling like when I come up, for sure she was saying, "Tis no use; she never will." Nonsense, says he. Give her time and poison her mind against that Blake, and she'll come round. I've done that, says she. I've told her that Mister Blake is a regular male flirt, that he's had dozens of love affairs with girls, and besides that, I told her that her marked preference for him was being talked about. Yes, says Walter and see how she's treated him since. True enough, says she, but it's made her no softer towards you. If she avoids him, she dislikes you. And do you think she cares about Blake, says he. I don't know, she replies. She never would tell me anything, and that's why I dislike her so. But for all that, she's no hypocrite. Well, what for that, he asks. I went to a room last night and I began to tell her more about him and compare him to you. Well, says he. Well, she got into a temper and told me that she would not allow Mr. Blake's name to be associated with yours in her room. Then, sir, that heir Willin he swore like a trooper and said he'd make you rue the day you were born. After that, they were silent for a little while, and then she says to him, I believe she knows what you're wantin' to do, and has some idea of the influence you've exerted over him. She's as sharp as a lancet, and it's difficult to deceive her. If only that Blake hadn't come, he says, as if talking to himself. Yes, she says, but he has come, says she. But if he can be made to leave her and never speak to her again, will it not show to her that he's what you said he was, and thus turn her against him? I don't know. She's been cool enough to drive him away," said that heir, Miss Staggles. But if he leaves disgraced, prove to be a villain, a deceiver, a blackleg, or worse than that, while I show up as an angel of light? I don't know, she says. You're a wonderful man. You can do almost anything. You could charm even an angel. Well, you'll do your best for me, won't you? Says he. You know I will, she says but we must not be seen together like this, or they will suspect something. True, says he, but I want to know how things are going on. Then he stopped a minute, and a thought seemed to strike him. Miss Steggles, my friend, he says. Watch her closely, and meet me here on New Year's Day at five o'clock in the evening. It's dark then, and everybody will be indoors. Then, your honor, they went away together, and I was on the lookout for you all day yesterday. There was much in Simon's story to think about, and for a time, all was mystery to me. One thing, however, I thought was clear. He had either found he could do no good by his mesmeric influences, or else he had lost them, and so he was working up some other scheme against me. I pondered long over the words, if he leaves disgraced, Prove to be a villain, a deceiver, a blackleg, or worse than that, while I show up as an angel of light? Surely that meant a great deal. I must be on the watch. I must be as cunning as he. I did not like eavesdropping or playing the spy. And yet I felt there were times when it would be right to do so. And surely that time had come in my history. There was villainy to be unmasked. There was a true, innocent girl to be saved, while my reputation, happiness, and perhaps life were in danger. I determined I would meet, stratagem with stratagem. I would hear this conference in the wood that evening. I would seek to undeceive Miss Forrest, too, whose behavior was now explained. Accordingly, after a few more words with Simon, I wended my way back to the house again. I found Miss Forrest still in the library, together with Tom Temple and Edith Gray. All three looked up brightly at my entrance. "'We were just talking about you, Justin,' said Tom, as I joined them. "'I had been telling these ladies what a terrible woman-avoider you have always been. Miss Forrest wouldn't believe me at first, but that story of your walking five miles alone rather than riding a carriage with some ladies has convinced her. I thought you had improved the first day or so after you came.' but you seem to have fallen back into your old ways. Don't put the fault on me, Tom, I said. The fault has generally been with the ladies. The truth is, I'm not a ladies' man, and hence, not liked by them. I have generally been put down as a kind of bore, I expect, and I've never taken the trouble to improve my reputation. Then you ought, said Miss Gray laughingly. It's a shame that you should be under such a ban, because if a man can't make himself pleasant to ladies, what can he do? Well, I should like to turn over a new leaf, I replied, but then I don't seem to please. I've no doubt my company is very tiring, and thus I must be left out in the cold. Nonsense, replied Tom. Let us have another ride this afternoon, and see whether you can't make Miss Forrest a pleasant companion. "'If Miss Forrest would allow me, I should be delighted,' I said. "'I expected an excuse, such as a cold, a headache, or some previous engagement, "'especially as she had looked steadily into the fire while we had been talking. "'Instead of this, however, she frankly accepted my escort, "'and accordingly the ride was arranged. "'Nothing of importance happened before we started. "'We had gone out quietly and had attracted no notice,' and rode away towards the ruins of an old castle which Tom thought we should like to visit. As I stated, it was a raw, cold day, but I did not feel the biting wind or notice the weird desolation that was all around. I felt supremely happy as I rode by Miss Forrest's side. We had gone perhaps two miles from the house when we found ourselves separated from Tom Temple and Miss Gray, and we slackened our horses' speed to a walk. "'Have you thought my conduct strange since we last rode out together?' she said. "'I have indeed,' I replied bluntly, "'especially as I do not remember having done anything that should merit your evident dislike to me.' "'I owe you an apology,' she said. "'I have been very foolish, very unjust. "'I am very sorry.' "'But might I ask why you saw fit to change your conduct from friendliness to extreme aversion?' I am almost ashamed to tell you, Mr. Blake, but I will, if there is one thing for which I have aversion and contempt, it is for flirting, coquetry, and the like. If there is any species of mankind that I despise, it is that of a flirt, a society man, a ladies man. And have I ever given evidence of belonging to that class, Miss Forrest? No, she replied. "'and that is why I am so ashamed of myself. "'But I listened to some foolish gossip "'about your boasting of your conquest with ladies and the like. "'I know I ought not to have listened to that, but I did. "'I am very sorry. Will you forgive me?' "'She said this frankly, and without hesitation, "'yet I thought I saw a blush mount her cheek as she spoke. "'If there is anything to forgive, I do forgive you,' I replied especially as I despise that class of individuals as much as you. The vapid, dancing society mannequin is everywhere an object of contempt, while a society girl, as generally accepted, is not a whit more to my taste. I saw she was pleased at this, and I felt I loved her more than ever. Did she, I wondered, care anything for me? Was there any vestige of interest in her heart beyond that which she felt for any passing acquaintance? mr blake she said after pausing a second do you remember what we were talking about that day when we last rode out together we were talking of mr voltaire i said have you found out anything more about him no i have not is there any mystery connected with him i think there is i have an indistinct kind of feeling that both he and the egyptian are deceivers while i am sure that mr voltaire is is your enemy "'I have no doubt he is,' I said. "'She looked at me strangely. "'I had not been in Temple Hall two hours "'before that man had marked me "'as one that he would fain be rid of.' "'Indeed,' she said. "'Then if that is the case, "'you should listen to my advice. "'Have nothing to do with him.' "'But I must have something to do with him, "'and with his friend, the Egyptian, as well.' "'Don't,' she said anxiously. "'The two work together.' and are both cunning as serpents, I believe, she continued after a pause, that the thought-reading and mesmerism were somehow designed to injure you. I think somehow they are acquainted with forces unknown to us, and will use them for evil. Yes, I believe all that, I said. Then why must you have any dealings with them? Because they will have dealings with me, because they are plotting against me, Because there are forces over which I have no control, drawing me on. But why will they have dealings with you? Why are they plotting against you? Because Voltaire knows that I love, with all my soul, the woman he wants to win for his wife. A curious look shot across her face. What was it? Love? Astonishment? Pain? Vexation? Or joy? I could not tell but my tongue was unloosened. "'Do I annoy you, astonish you, Miss Forrest?' I said. "'Forgive me if I do. I have been regarded as a woman-hater, a society-avoider. That is because I never saw a woman in whom I was sufficiently interested to court her society. I have heard it said that such characters fall in love quickly, or not at all.' THE FIRST DAY I SAW YOU, I FELL IN LOVE WITH YOU. I LOVE YOU WITH ALL MY SOUL. SHE LOOKED AT MY FACE steadily, BUT DID NOT SPEAK A WORD. Voltaire HAS FOUND OUT THIS, AND HE TOO WANTS YOU FOR HIS WIFE, SO HE HAS BEEN TRYING, IS TRYING, TO DRIVE ME AWAY FROM HERE. HOW, I CANNOT TELL YOU, BUT WHAT I HAVE SAID IS TRUE. I SPOKE RAPIDLY, PASSIONATELY, AND I SAW THAT HER FACE BECAME ALTERNATELY PALE AND RED, BUT SHE DID NOT REPLY. Am I bold to speak thus? I asked. I think I must be, for I have scarcely known you a week, but I cannot help it. My life is given up to you. If I could but know that my love were not in vain, if you could give me some word of hope. A beautiful look lit up her eyes. She opened her mouth to speak, when a voice shouted, Come, Justin, don't loiter so. We shall not get back in time for dinner if you do. It was Tom Temple who spoke, and a turn in the lane revealed him. To say I was sorry would be but to hint at my feelings, but I could not hinder the turn things had taken, so we started our horses into a gallop, I hoping that soon another opportunity might occur for our being alone. When I trusted she would tell me what I desired to know. I do not know how I dared to make my confession of love for certainly I had but little proof of her caring for me. If I hoped, it was almost without reason, and yet, as we galloped on, my heart beat right joyfully. Nothing of importance occurred during the ride. The castle we visited was grim and grey enough, but it was not the kind of afternoon, when one could enjoy to the full such a place, so we were not long before we turned our horses' heads homeward. Time after time on our homeward journey, that I contrived to be alone with Miss Forrest, but always in vain. She kept by the side of Edith Gray in spite of all my schemes to get her by mine. Her lips were compressed, and her eyes had a strange look. I longed to know what she was thinking about, but her face revealed nothing. We came to the house at length, however, and then I hastened from her side to lift her from the saddle. Then my heart gave a great throb for I thought she returned the pressure of my hand. "'Do be careful about that man,' she said hurriedly, and then ran into the house. "'It was joy and light to me. I needed it in the dark days that came after. The stable boy had scarcely taken the horses when a thought struck me. I looked at my watch, and it was almost too dark for me to discern the time, but I saw, after some difficulty, that it wanted—' but a few minutes to five. In my joy I had forgotten my determination, but now I quickly made my way to the summer-house that stood in the dark fir plantation. End of chapter 8